The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On with the show. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Prima, the host of Spotlight on Success. Eric, let's get right into it. It sounds like you have a very interesting interview and very timely. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to interview a gentleman. His name is Mike, uh, Bruce Flommer. Bruce Flommer is founder and CEO of Michael Bruce Image Consulting. And I really wanted to talk to him about uh, the changing way that attire is applied in the in the workspace, particularly offices. And things have certainly changed, Paul, since you and I were early in our careers. And and Seattle is kind of a, a casual city in and of itself. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to a professional about what's expected these days in the workplace. Uh, and if you're new to a job or getting a promotion, what are some tips for improving your wardrobe on a, on a budget, so to speak? Uh, it sounds good. You know, with Zoom, we probably need this uh, re-education, so to speak, of what's appropriate. So I think that sounds really timely again. You have some great guests too. Yeah, I have uh, Steve Rabel. Former Seahawks player, he was a player on the inaugural season of the Seattle Seahawks in 1976. As most of you know, he was the weeknight anchor at Cairo TV, and he's the current play-by-play announcer for the Seattle Seahawks. We go into quite a bit of issues about the Seahawks. One is, uh, what was it like playing for the Seahawks when they were new? I even kind of delved into the uh, Super Bowl loss in New England and uh, what his thoughts were on that. And he gave some new perspectives on that. What did he think about the uh, Russell Wilson trade? Again, he's got a fresh ideas on that trade. And uh, how does he think the Seahawks will do this year? And uh, it's interesting when I did the interview, I said, what am I going to play this? And then I started thinking, um, well, it's probably into the fall or something because we're in baseball and all that. Well, it's, um, August 3rd in the first preseason game is 10 days away. So there you have it. Not that far away at all. And then you have Stu Elway from the Elway poll. He's going to talk about, are we going to stay a blue state or become a red state in the fall election? The one hit wonder today is going to be an individual who was a a very famous artist that he wrote for, but then he had his own hit in the summer of 1971. So my interview with Steve Rabel coming up in just a moment. Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com. Steve Rabel has joined me, and among many things he's done in his career, he is the current play-by-play announcer for the Seattle Seahawks. He was a weeknight news anchor for Cairo TV from 1993 until his retirement in 2020. He's a graduate of Georgia Tech, and he came to Seattle in 1976 when he was drafted by the Seahawks in their inaugural season. He played tight end for six years under the first Seahawks coach, Jack Patera who also lasted six seasons as a Seahawks coach, 
We talked about what it was like playing for Jack Patera. His comments shed some new light on the coach and very favorable. Also in this interview, Steve addresses the Russell Wilson trade. I spoke to him about the final offensive play at the Super Bowl. You remember that one against New England. I guess we all call it the play. I thought it was a good call and so did he. But he had some new information as to why it didn't work. What were the ups and downs of being with an expansion team? Well, certainly the ups of being with an expansion team are the fact that there's not a great expectation that you're going to win a lot of games right off the bat. Uh, Expansion hadn't happened for a long time in the NFL when we came in, along with Tampa Bay back in 76. So um, there was really not a lot of muscle memory on the part of football fans as to uh, uh, how this all works out. And quite frankly, the, the system that was set up to stock our team with players was uh, quite a bit different than what they did in later years with teams like Carolina and Jacksonville, uh, who got to the playoffs really quickly because of how they were able to stock their teams with, with high-end free agents. So we had uh, you know, basically a bunch of us green rookies. There were 17 rounds in the draft back then. So we had uh, all those players from the draft. I was a bonus pick. We had a couple of extra bonus picks in the second round and third round. And so I was a bonus pick in the second round. And, uh, and then we had a lot of, uh, of uh, unprotected, and when I say unprotected, I mean unprotected by their teams, uh, veterans around the league who were, uh, you know, teams had to let certain number of guys go unprotected on every team. And then the, the expansion teams could pick from those. And so from there we got guys like uh, the great Dave Brown, uh, and offensive linemen like uh, Nick Bebout and, and uh, our, you know, one of my still closest friends, Sam McCollum, wide receiver. Uh, those guys all played in the league the year before or several years before that, and we, we plucked them. So that's how they stocked the team. And, uh, you know, again, the expectations weren't great, but uh, the city was just crazy to have this team here. You know, they were hoping they could sell about 30,000 season tickets and they sold upwards of 60000 in a couple of days. So uh, everybody wanted to come. Everybody wanted to see NFL football. Had a brand-new stadium with a dome on it so you didn't have to sit in the rain. Uh, it, was, it, you know, it was terrific. The, the downside was you have a brand-new team, and you got no track record, and you got a lot of coaches who, while they had experience in the league, had never coached together before. And so all of us are kind of learning each other along the way. And, um, uh, you know, it, it made for some difficult times. There were only 14 games played then, regular season games, six preseason games. And so we went 2-12 and 12 that first year. And, uh, you know, not a, not a great record. We played competitively at times, and then at times we got blown out. And that's kind of what you'd expect from a, a young team like that. As I recall, though, by the third year, I did I remember this right that the Seahawks were like five and nine, and then a couple within a year or two later, they were in seven and nine or nine and seven. Nine and seven, yeah. We were we uh, we ended up um, uh, being the winningest expansion franchise in the history of the league in uh, I think 1978 when we went uh, nine and seven, and in '79 we went nine and seven as well, and just I think we missed the playoffs by a game that year. So we were on the right track, and um, you know Jack Patera was—he was a tough coach, but he was a fair coach and a good coach, a solid guy, 
And, um, and, you know, we were starting to build that system that we had basically built around a guy like Jim Zorn and his ability to scramble around a little bit and Steve Largent and uh, a great running game. And by this time, then 78, 79, we're starting to get some young defensive players like Jacob Green and Kenny Easley came on in 81. And, you know, then you're starting to get some guys that turned into pro bowlers and, uh, were just outstanding players for the team. So, you know, it took a little time to get everything set up, but, but once, once we did, you know, it was, it was a kind of a, a really great run. And then, then it kind of all came down in 82 and, and started over again. And that is what brought Chuck Knox on board and eventually the playoffs. Right. Now, Jack Patera was fired, was he not? I'm trying to remember that. Yes. And I felt yes. the same way about you, you know, that you're saying, and I'm just a fan watching this, but I thought it was just such a, he was a good coach and he did a lot of right things and the Seahawks were winning on the right track and then he was let go, fired. What happened there? Yeah, well, it was 1982. I retired at the end of the 81 season. So right before the start of the 82 season is actually is when I retired and went to work at Cairo. And uh, in 82, there was a player strike. And it was something that, as a member of the Players Association, I kind of could see coming because we had been talking about it for years. Uh, we went to you know Players Association meetings uh, at, in the off season uh, several uh, years, and that was the big one of the big uh, conversations was you know to get what we want as players. And in that time, I think that first strike in '82 was we were looking for a 60-40 split on the revenues. Uh, and, um, you know, there was no salary cap or anything like that in those days. So teams could spend as little or as much as they wanted. And, and, uh, generally teams tried to spend as little as they could. And so <clears throat> we could see this coming down the tracks. Anyway, I retired in 82 and, um, the strike happened and Jack was, uh, for all his positives as a great coach or as a, you know, a really terrific coach. And as I found out later in life, when we had both been away from, you know, actual player and coaching for a long time, uh, just a terrific guy, funny guy, smart, uh, interesting guy. You'd love to sit around and talk to about everything besides football as well. Uh, and right up to the end, uh, when he passed and, uh, I, I think I spent more time, uh, up at his Cleelum place and, and visiting with him in the later years than I ever did when we were, you know, when we were player and coach, but, um, he, he was, uh, not a big fan of the strike. Uh, he had been a, a player, a marginal player in his early years, uh, and then went on to be a coach. Uh, and he, he just, he, he thought that it, we were all, you know, just kind of lucky to be there, including him. He said, you know, we're all lucky to be here. This is somebody, this is a business and somebody owns this team and we're all uh, lucky to be here and, and let's just go out there and enjoy every day. Once you sign your contract, put it in the bottom drawer of your desk, and when it's up, we'll talk to you about another one, maybe. Uh, I think the best way to judge um, kind of how many of us in the Seahawks uh, approached uh, our time with the franchise was the very first meeting that we had uh, as a team in 1976 at training camp. And here's 100-plus players all gathered in this room at Eastern Washington uh, University in Cheney. And uh, Jack's first words were, I'll tell you what one of my coaches told me a long time ago, we'll tolerate you till we can replace you. And that was sort of the, uh, it was kind of funny at the time, but it also 
was a real eye opener, and especially to a, a number of veterans who had not kind of heard things like that before from their coaches on different organizations. And that was, you know, as long as you can perform, we'll keep you around here. But the minute you're not, this is a business, and we're in the business of winning, and you're out of here. So uh, that's kind of uh, how that all uh, came down. And, and when the strike happened, Jack was not he was not uh, behind it at all. And uh, he had had uh, uh, he had made some decisions about uh, how we were going to go about the strike and uh, treating other players and other teams and things like that. And it, it just didn't sit well with uh, management. Uh, and ownership, and by that time, the uh, the Nordstroms were the, uh, you know, they were the minority or the majority owners of the team at the time, and uh, they kind of made the decision along with the other owners that since there was a strike going on, the players were all out, um, and it didn't look like it was going to get settled anytime soon. They were going to make a break with Jack at that time, and so they did, and they they let him go, and Mike McCormick was hired as the. He was already there as the team's president. He came on as the interim head coach, and then Mike was the one who hired Chuck Knox away from uh, Buffalo. And uh, the very next year, 83, uh, Chuck took that team, most of whom were Jack's players, and took them all the way to the AFC Championship game. So it was uh, you know, quite a, quite a jump. Interesting. Uh, thank you so much for really setting us straight on Patera because I think he had a really negative, or a lot of fans had a very negative view of him when he was let go. And I think he came across as kind of a sour type of guy. And But you're saying he's anything but that as a coach. And that's good to hear that, um, you know, he was like that because he certainly did have yeah. success. And as you mentioned, and I remember that at the time now that the next year with with the players that Jack Patera recruited to play at the Seattle Seahawks, they went to the playoffs and to the AFC Championship. How did you then, as a player, transition into broadcasting? Was this something that you wanted to do or did it just kind of come to you? It never was uh, on my radar, at least initially. Georgia Tech was, you know, and is obviously uh, an engineering school. And they only had one at that time, one degree offer that was not specifically engineering and that was called industrial management and that was basically uh, business courses and preparing uh, guys to go into business either owning your own or or they had a lot of CEOs that came out of Georgia Tech uh, in this uh, in this degree Uh, and so that's what I majored in and so I was all set to you know I'd have been better served probably from my from my uh, uh, training at Georgia Tech to be, um, you know, a, a member of the front office at a football team or a, a salesman on the marketing team that uh, held the TV rights or something, as opposed to actually being uh, on the air. But what happened was I got out here in 76, and I right away made friends with a guy named Don Fair. And Don was the columnist for the then Seattle Post-Intelligencer, and he was the beat reporter for uh, the brand-new Seahawks. And so Don, um, he was doing little thumbnail sketches on all the players uh, in that early training camp time. And he chose me uh, because we had enjoyed our conversations. And, and um, I had, you know, I came out, like I said, I came out of tech and I was, uh, you know, I could carry on a conversation and those sorts of things. And, and he said, listen, I want to do a rookie diary and I want to do a, a talk with you at the end of every week. And then we'll kind of 
you know, put it down. We'll follow it through, and uh, and you can just kind of give folks a sense for what is a rookie in a brand new city <clears throat> on a brand new football team going through, and especially with the you know the season not being what what we'd all hope it would be. And I said, sure. So he and I got to be good friends, and at that point, I I sort of became one of those guys in the locker room that. Uh, you know, hey, we can get a quote from Rabel because he, you know, he he'll give us something even if, if nobody else really wants to talk, or even if it was a really lousy loss and everybody is is uh, sort of you know not feeling like chatting. At least we could probably get something from Rabel. So I started to make inroads that way, and then ultimately uh, I, I was uh, a guy who would appear on as a guest on Wayne Cody's Sportsline show. You know, back in the day. You know, now there's sports radio everywhere. Back in the day, that was the only one in Seattle. And it was big. Wayne Cody Sportsline Show, two hours every night and three hours on Saturday night of live sports talk, interviews, guests, phone calls, all those sorts of things. And he invited me to come down and be on his show a couple of times. And then he invited me to come down and be a guest host on the show. And then finally, in about my third year with the team, uh, he, they made the offer and said, listen, would you like to come down and like host on a Saturday night by yourself? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, come on down. You know, our producer will get you guests and we'll, we'll see what it sounds like. I did. And I was hooked. And from that point I did every, every time somebody asked me to do a commercial, I did one every time uh, I was asked to appear on a, a um, telethon or a fundraising event, whether it was Channel 9 or whatever, anytime I could get in front of a camera and and practice, basically, learn the business, I did. Every time I could get behind a microphone on radio, I did. And I grew to love it. And uh, I was doing, I was guest hosting on radio uh, and television while I was still playing, right up until the very end. And in fact, that's how I ended up out of football was the uh, uh, Pete Gross, who was the voice of the Seahawks at the time, called our house. Sharon and I had been married for a year, and he called our house, and I was in Spokane, I think, playing a charity golf tournament, and right before training camp, and he said, hey, um, we have an opening at Cairo for uh, um, an analyst on the radio broadcasts of the Seahawks, and there was also two other jobs uh, on TV, as a backup sports guy on TV behind Wayne and uh, a nightly magazine show called PM magazine uh, here at Cairo seven. And we think he can do all those things. There's only one problem. He's going to have to quit playing football. And so Sharon said, well, uh, when do you need to know? And Pete said, well, I'd like to know by next week. And she said, I'll have him there on Monday. (laughs) So that was that. All right. That's, that's great. Kind of look at your resume and where you've come from, of course. And then, then you become a TV journalist on Cairo. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, uh, the short part of that is I was given a lot of great opportunities, uh, but I, I did that those three jobs to start out at Cairo, and, and then there was a, an opening on the noon news. I want to say it was about in 80, I don't know, I'd been, I got to Cairo in the middle of 82. I want to say in about 85 or so, uh, maybe 86, uh, there was an opening on the noon news, and so they had me test for it, and I did, and uh, I guess I tested well enough, and then they put me on the noon news, and then I did sports in the evening and the news at noon. And 
eventually uh, it ended up that I was given an opportunity to move into the five o'clock slot in 1992. And I did and stayed there until I retired in uh, what, 2020, I guess. And, and, uh, and, you know, that's, that's kind of how that career came about. And, and, I, uh, but again, it was because people gave me those opportunities to move up and to learn while I was doing it. And, you know, it just doesn't happen very much in this business. No, of course not. It's a remarkable uh, journey. I mean, you play football, you then become a football announcer, a TV journalist, and you're out emceeing events around Seattle. You certainly have a unique perspective of this community. Um, I wanted to just ask one more football question, and that would be the Super Bowl, the terrible loss to New England. And uh, now Russell Wilson is no longer with us. How much do you think, because you hear there's a hangover during the Seahawks camps and, and inside the locker room or whatever that carried over with that. Again, what, what do you think about that? Well, no. I mean, there might have been some guys who were, you know, perturbed at the time. Um, I learned this a long time ago. Football players get over stuff pretty quickly. Coaches and fans sometimes don't. But players do because they have to. After the fact, after that um, was over and the loss, and even at the time, I will tell you, I did not, I, I didn't think it was a bad call. I mean, they loaded up, the Patriots loaded up the defensive line to guard against the run. They were not going to let uh, Marshawn Lynch beat them at the goal line. And so they had, you know, a bunch of big guys there to stop the run. And so this, the play made sense. I, I disagreed with the, who they threw it to because I thought he was a lesser receiver than the guys we had. But, you know, what happened happened. Uh, you're playing against another team and a guy who was pretty good over there at the time. So they make a play. So now we all go away. And, you know, yeah, guys kind of bitch and moan about it, pardon my French, uh, a little bit during the offseason. And then everybody comes back for the next year. And it's a different team. It's a different process you got it yes you have the same quarterback and you have some of the same players but again it's a different team every year and all you had to do was look about four or five years down the line after that and there were only what two or three players left from the Super Bowl who were still with the Seahawks Russell and Bobby were the last two and they're gone now so there's nobody left as a player who played on that Super Bowl those Super Bowl teams back in 2013 and 2014. So it is the process of the business that you're turning over players constantly. And um, you just, you can't hang on to things like that. It just doesn't happen. You have too much to do as a player and a coach, quite frankly, to be thinking about what happened that long ago. And so, no, I don't, I never put any stock in that. There, you know, everybody says, is there a hangover for teams? Ask the New England Patriots. They seem to get back there every other year. Uh, and I don't know that they've had a hangover. So uh, it, it's just kind of how the business works. And um, uh, the fact that when you win, as much as the Seahawks did in all those years, you're drafting at the back end of the, of the first round or not even in the first round. So you're not getting all those great players that a lot of teams were getting. The Rams, the 49ers, Arizona, they all built their teams through a lot of high-round draft choices that the Seahawks never had a chance to get until this last year, really. Uh, and it only came about through the big trade with uh, with the Denver Broncos for Russell. Well, for whatever it's worth, um, and I'm not a football person per se, but I never thought that was a bad call either. 
I thought it was appropriate <laughs> at the time. And the only thing that I will yeah. say, and it's like, Paul, get over it. I see some of the uh, slow motion um, film of that that occurred. And I think a case could have been made for pass interference in the end zone. And I've never heard that talked about. Have you? Yeah, I, I, I haven't, uh, frankly, very much. I mean, he did get there. It, it was he kind of went right through the receiver to get to the ball. And okay. um, and I think that was the deal. Had he just knocked the receiver down and knocked the ball down, they might have called pass interference. But because he picked it off and going through the, the receiver to get to the ball, uh, you know, he has he has a right to the football. Uh, but he doesn't have a right to interfere with our receiver's opportunity to catch it. That's interference. But you're right. I don't think they – and nobody ever, I think, really thought that there was interference called there. Uh, I just thought – and I was a receiver, so I could say this, that Ricardo Lockett, who was the receiver at the time on that play, you need to know what's the worst thing that can happen right now. And that is if that defensive back breaks hard on the ball. So you have to shield that ball. You have to become big and protect that ball as it's coming in there. Russ could have put it down a little bit lower, and that would have kept the DB away from it. But So that's all execution. That, that's not the play call. And um, I think that's what Pete said literally right after the game, that this was, this was a matter of execution, not a matter of play call. Got it. Thank you for clarifying both for me yes, because sir. now You're welcome. it's kind of that uh, has lifted from me and I can move on with my life. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> I'm sorry, Goodness I'm serious. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Quick question. How about this yeah. upcoming season in the booth? What do you think going forward? Oh, I'm I'm excited. I really am. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, you know, and and rightly so, I think. You know, you start wondering, you know, who's going to be the quarterback because that is the most important position on the team. Um, but I'm excited. I, I, I've got a lot of new players to talk about. I've got some high-round draft choices to be able to talk about. I, I just uh, think it's, it's uh, you know, you hate to see Russ go. You hate to see Bobby go. But I've been with this team now. This is my 47th season as a player or a broadcaster. So I've seen a lot of players and coaches and organizational people come and go. And uh, it, it is what it is. It is the business. And uh, I, 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 as great a player as Russell has been, and he'll end up in the Hall of Fame without question, um, I think it was time. And uh, I, I believe the same for Bobby. Bobby's a great player, and he may have another year or two left. But for the Seahawks to be able to – really reset and get back to what they want to be. They had to they had to get some more players in there, some young blood in there, and they've done that. And that's why I'm so excited about going back into the booth this offseason and calling these games. Uh, so, And I've met all of these young draft choices. I had a chance to meet them the week after they were drafted. What a great group of guys. Smart. Most of them were their college captains. So that gives you a sense for their great leadership uh, capabilities, not to mention the fact that they're just great athletes. So I think it's going to be fun. Will we win, you know, 14 games? Heck, I don't know. Uh, nobody does generally win that many games. But will we be competitive? Will we win our share of them? Yeah, absolutely. My thanks to Steve Rabel, play-by-play announcer for the Seattle Seahawks. On a personal note, the late Bob Walsh, which I believe many of you remember his name, helped put together our first golf tournament at the Seattle Golf Club way back in 1985 when I was director of the Alzheimer's Association of what is now Western Washington. Steve MC the event. It was our first year, 
and we needed this fundraiser desperately to keep the doors open. I don't think Steve Rabel had any idea how desperate we were, but Steve Rabel emceed that event and knocked the ball out of the park. We raised a lot of money, and I owe him a lot of thanks for doing that because it was a very successful night. You know what? I'm not sure we would have survived if it hadn't been for Steve Grable to carry the moment. And good day, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Spotlight on Success right here on Voices of Experience. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you're having a wonderful day as we get into this conversation. I'm really happy to have with me a a past colleague and a, a constant friend. Uh, Mr. Bruce Flummer, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Oh, that's so nice. A con- uh, a friend. I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that. I didn't want to make it sound like we used to be friends. <laughs> no, no, no. Friends. Well, we were good colleagues, and I-, I like that we've kept in touch. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Now, you're CEO of Michael Bruce Image. No. <laughs> See, I did that to you on purpose. I'm the CEO of Michael Bruce Image Consulting. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to test you. Sorry about that. No, you have a wonderful company. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is because a lot of things have changed of late, certainly in the last three years across so much of society. Um, But one thing that you specialize in is helping people with their image, really their image from within and how they project themselves. And I've always been uh, so impressed with you and uh, amazed at the things that you've accomplished. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. On all those achievements in the way that you carry yourself, not only just visually, but the type of business person you are. Thank you. So, yes. If if any of you are out there are aspiring entrepreneurs, I would highly recommend, as we give out a phone number for, for Bruce down the, down the road here, to jot that down. He's the type of person who will just talk to you to talk to you. He wants to hear about your dreams, and uh, he'll, he's certainly going to be a help if you give him the opportunity. You would have to be humble in that situation, right? Absolutely. You have to be open to advice. You do. I mean, entrepreneurs, I mean, that's the way when I started my company, I surrounded myself with a couple of mentors and uh, listened to a lot of stuff and heard some stuff that was tough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, really some things that were challenging, some things that were super helpful. I think one of the biggest thing was I went to an event that a client of mine put on and um, it was actually a TED Talk. It was a TED event okay. here um, in Seattle, Washington. Probably one of the things that changed my pathway the most. Um, I met this guy <laughs> at the time named Simon Sinek. And if you look up Simon Sinek, he's the guy that came up with, that wrote the book, Getting to Why. And it's all about your brand and how to take your company to the next level. And that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Interesting. And he used Apple as an example. I mean, it was amazing. But he looked at me and he said, he goes, why do you do what you do? And I was like, you mean what do I do? He goes, no, why do you do what you do? And I was like, okay. And it was a really good question. But uh, we were, I was going, um, so then he gave his presentation and it was just amazing. And I looked at the program and it had all of the people in attendance to this TED event. Hmm. And they were all CEOs. And my name was on it. Wow. And I came to my client afterwards because she put it on. I'd like, I'm like, you put my name on this. And she, I'm like, but I thought you just invited me. She goes, I said, I said, you put CEO and she's like, you are. And I'm like, I have like one employee. (laughs) And she said, she goes, you need to see yourself as a CEO of your brand. 
of your company. She goes, I see you that way. And she goes, no one else here knows that you have one employee or none employees, part-time, whatever. There, I said, I said, there are some big-time CEOs here. And she goes, you are the expert in the room at what you do. Absolutely. And that makes you the CEO. And it was really, really good. And it changed how I perceived myself. Wonderful. As my company. Well, I've witnessed you in action in the office as we used to work together. Mm-hmm. And, at 98.9 uh, and 98 Smooth, smooth Jazz. jazz. <laughs> Whenever you see that, everybody KWJZ. says, KWJZ. Where did that station go? I love that I station. Know. Everyone says that. Yeah? Everyone says thing. it. It kind of went when we went, right? Yeah, we did. Absolutely. <laughs> we left. And we were the key. <laughs> absolutely. We were the key. No, you're right. Great station. But in the office... Um, you know, you'd even talk to coworkers and things like that initially, uh, prior to having your business, about just if they had questions about fashion and and what would I look good in and what do you think I should wear around the office, that sort of thing. Now, I personally never took your advice, obviously, as you know, uh, by the way that I dress these days. But you know, I'm in radio for a reason. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to say that you're still saving all your shekels because one day you're going to call me and go, "Hey, I'm ready." I got that money. <laughs> Let's 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 begin the conversation with the way things were sort of back then, if you will, the five day a week in the office, um, you know, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5, 530 uh, ties, that sort of thing to where we are now. And, and a lot has happened beyond just changing tastes. Mm-hmm. Things have happened globally oh, that yeah. have changed the way people work. Yeah, so yeah. let's just start the conversation with you sort of leading it in that, in that yeah, vein. Yeah, the workplace culture has definitely changed. I mean, we've even seen it with our, our clients um, that we help. And that's the most confusing part about the workplace culture is that it's changed. When it was coming to work, We um, here's the thing. We need you to come to work. You, you wear a suit, mm-hmm. you know, uh, every day or a tie, dress shoes, you know, we need you here from 8.30 in the morning. You remember that, the bed checks until yep. 5, yep. 5.30 at night. Yeah. And everyone was like 5.29 and then like, boom, mass exodus out the door. And um, that's changed. And workplace culture has changed. People are working remotely from home. People are doing hybrids. Um, some people are traveling. Some people used to travel or don't travel anymore. And I think it's confusing for people. And what's really confusing is style is how do they show up? Um, there's video conferencing that there wasn't video conferencing mm-hmm. before. Um, there's people that, I, I actually have clients around the country that I have actually never met face to face. I've never actually shaken their hand. Wow. And I've styled them for years. Interesting word choice, confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's spot on. Uh, I think m- maybe I'm generalizing, but I think particularly for men, mm-hmm. it can be confusing to know what to wear. Especially if there's not someone who's got some style in your life, right? Well, it's interesting that people assume because I'm a man and I have an image consulting company that my clientele is men. Hmm. 90% of my clientele is women. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Yeah. um, I am an expert at style and my company, my employees are, but we take care of men and women, all shapes, all sizes, all genders, all everything. Okay. So yeah, it's actually my largest clientele. I won't say 90%, it's probably 85, 15. Um, so yeah. So we've gone from this place of a lot of regimen mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes rules and regs as to what you wear. And now I find it 
actually uh, very rare that I, unless maybe I'm driving in the banking district of downtown Seattle, I just don't see someone in a suit very often. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if it's the places I go um, or if it's true to what the workforce hears here in the Emerald City, let's say. I would say it's true. It's not just the Emerald City. I mean, I think there's um, there's a lot of places. I think the concept of, and here's the confusion part, confusing. You ready? Two words. Business casual. Okay. Business casual makes no sense at all. What do you mean? Because it's an oxymoron. You don't do business casually. You do business professionally mm. buttoned up. You know, when you're doing business, your stuff has to be set and right. And ne- the end result of business can't be casual. It can't be, oh, we casually got that business. That's a good point. <laughs> or you can pay us if you like. You can pay us if you like, yeah, you, know, you know, if you want. You know, it's like, no, that business is, there's numbers, there's, you know, there's statistics, you know, goals. we have goals. That's a business. The concept of casual, people are like, oh, I just want to work for a company that's casual. It's like, really? What if they casually paid you? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm supposed to get paid on Friday, but hey, can we pay you next Thursday? And can we pay you half? No one would want that. That's casual. So the way I look at people when they say I'm a casual in my style, it's like you're still business in your style. Casual is a mindset. Don't be casual in business. So what does that mean in a practical sense? Um, if you're in an, in, say, an office environment, mm-hmm. uh, and you wanna you wanna look professional. But you do want to be comfortable. Yeah. You, you know, you don't want to be sweating all day because you got the tight shirt and that sort of thing or, or whatever. I mean, which you, is funny because people will look at me and they say, Bruce, you look so buttoned up. What's your number one thing? So, my number one thing in getting dressed and buying clothing for me is comfort. That is my number one thing. I don't like fidgeting with my clothes. They have to fit me really mm-hmm. well, they have mm-hmm. to be comfortable. I'm, I'm, when we're in clients' closets, um, or even in a dress room, helping them with clothing. We're bending down, we get on our knees. I mean, we're bending down, we're moving. And believe it or not, I very seldomly don't wear a jacket, a blazer jacket of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't keep it and I don't unbutton it. So I, it's gotta be, it's just my style. I'm really buttoned up that way. All of my clothing is stretch. Okay. <laughs> it's super comfortable and it fits my body. So I, I don't even wear dress shoes. I wear dress sneakers. Okay. Yeah. So. I'm looking at you now. This is mm-hmm. obviously radio. So it's yeah. tough to, but you are, you're, you, you, it all sort of comes together. It looks right, right mm-hmm. and it looks right to you. It's purposeful. Okay. Purposeful. So style is about purpose. So people's personal style, people don't understand what their brand is, their personal brand. So they can't truly reflect what that is. They're communicating something totally different than what they really want to communicate. Hmm. And you don't want to look at someone and go, boy, um, you're going to do business with me today, but you like that you're not ready to do business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's getting up in the morning and quote unquote, getting dressed. There's a difference between putting on clothes and actually getting dressed for your day. Getting dressed for your day is what do I have going on? What's happening? Who am I meeting with? What do I want to get accomplished today? And that means you're actually going to get dressed for the day. And it doesn't matter what you wear to get dressed for the day. 
it's got to be like, if I'm meeting with people, I want to make sure that the presentation that I make is the very best. Remember, you get three seconds to make that presentation, whether it's on video or whether it's in person. So what is the best way people can reach you, reach out to your team if they're looking to uh, to get to that point in their professional life? MichaelBruceImageConsulting.com. People can go there at MichaelBruceImageConsulting.com and fill out one of our, which we call a PSA, which is our personal style assessment. And believe it or not, someone it's 10 questions you filled out. Someone will meet with you for uh, 20 minutes or a half hour, and it's no obligation. Okay. You can ask, people can ask any question. And it's a really interesting assessment because it's a real, it's 10 very pointed directed questions to help you get to know yourself, but then to help us get to know you a little bit better. Well, I love not giving too much information to the audience because mm -hmm. I want them to learn on their own too, mm -hmm. uh, because we all learn at a different pace. And so I'd love for folks to then go to your website, uh, michaelbruceimageconsulting.com. Mm -hmm. You are the CEO of this successful company. Yeah. You have a great team that you've built, and it's all deserved. So congratulations on what you've accomplished. I know there are great things in your future, your company's future. Thanks, man. And Bruce, I'd love to have you back because unbelievably, it's been 13 minutes. What? It feels, I know, it just <laughs> feels like five minutes. Um, and I'd love to talk more in depth, too, with you. Would you come back? Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Anytime. And thank you, audience, for listening to this edition of Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Crema, your host. We'll be back next week with another great guest right here on Kixie and KKNW and where you find your favorite podcasts. Take care. Stuart Elway is my guest. And if you've been listening to Voices of Experience for any length of time, you know that Stu comes on the show quarterly and talks about what Washingtonians are thinking about the issues. So let's just get right to the results of the Crosscut Elway poll that was just released in late July. So I just wanted to ask, first of all, that uh, you look at uh, the poll results and you've been doing this a long time. But what you found is that citizens of the state of Washington are very gloomy, more gloomy than you've ever seen them before. Is that correct? The Voter Outlook Index, which combines uh, the answers to four questions. We ask people to look ahead over the next year or so. You think things will be going much better, somewhat better, somewhat worse, or much worse for the United States in Washington State, for your community, and for you and your household. And I've been asking those, those same four questions uh, two or three times a year for 30 years now. And this last time is the lowest score we've ever had, and by far. What I see, it's along party lines. Democrats are more optimistic than Republicans. Yes, the Republicans are in a particularly sour mood. People uh, in eastern Washington are uh, scored lower than people elsewhere. People in rural areas were much more pessimistic than people in the cities. You know, I found uh, interesting, too, is that what you uncovered, there's that feeling across the state of throwing the bums out, but they don't know which bums to put back in. The overall take on this thing, the voter outlook, as we just discussed, is the lowest it's ever been. We have Joe Biden with a positive job rating of 31% in Washington state, a, a state he carried by a large margin. Jay Inslee's job ratings are at the lowest point of his tenure in office. We have 66% of the people say they are not well represented in the national government. 
and 53% say they are not well represented in state government, and yet Democrats have a 20-point advantage going into the midterm election. Patty Murray had a 20-point lead in her race against Tiffany Smiley. People are in a bad mood, but it's not the, not the Democrats that they want to throw out. They're not ready to give the reins over to the Republicans, what it looked like to me. Well, very confusing, and I think your poll came out at the exact right time because it had benefit of the January 6th hearings and also the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. And it appeared, I think from our last conversation, that the train was rolling down the tracks in favor of the Republicans, but now that's kind of stalled because of that. There was a big, uh, big shift between our January poll and this poll. Uh, and you're right. The Republicans were within seven points on party identification. Patty Murray had a three-point lead against, uh, at that point, a, a, a generic Republican challenger. The legislative races was down to double digits in the generic question. And now the Democrats have uh, blown that back up to 20 points. The most attention is abortion, which we're in a state that has affirmed uh, right to choice twice at the polls. We voted in favor of, of abortion rights before Roe v. Wade was put in in the first place. So I think what, what be happening here is some people may have gotten sort of complacent about some of these things and and now these supreme court rulings have uh, awakened people to the elections having consequences yeah i know this wasn't in the poll but just to get your observation on this is that it just appeared that the republicans were just going to steamroll into getting majorities in the senate and in the house and reverse it because traditionally they do anyhow yeah. but then with everything else going on it just seems so bleak that the democrats might as well not even show up. That's an exaggeration, but it was looking bad. Do you have any sense that the Democrats may be able to hang on to the House and and the Senate, or what's your well, what's your view on that? You watch the the national indicators on this thing, and this generic question I keep referring to is the one pollsters use: Would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat for the Congress in your district because we can't do 438 separate polls. So that question is one that's always been used as an indicator. Right now, it was the one that was showing this this Republican landslide earlier in the year nationwide. It was going to be this red wave coming. Well, now it's even, or maybe even a point or two to the advantage of the Democrats in the generic poll. That doesn't mean they're going to carry the House. That's still an uphill battle, but it may be a lot closer than people thought. And the the odds makers, uh, Nate Silver, 538, now gives Democrats a better chance of controlling the Senate than Republicans. So it's tightened up considerably since the first of the year. The one thing that people are been curious about nationally and even here, is this uncoupling we've got of the presidential ratings and vote intention. Usually, you expect people to say, if I like the president, I'm going to vote for his party. In this case, Biden has got some of the lowest ratings ever, and yet the Democrats seem to be surging in spite of that. My thanks to Stuart Elway, as always, giving us what Washingtonians are thinking at any given time. If you would like to dive into his poll further, you can visit crosscut.com. That's crosscut.com. 
That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema, we thank you for joining us today. And uh, a certain uh, thank you to Steve Rabel, Stu Elway, and Bruce Plomer. Great interview with Bruce, Eric. Yeah, thank you. You know, he's an interesting gentleman. I've worked with him for many, many years. I was always impressed with just the way he carries himself and and also the way that, you know, he looks and his appearance. He's always put together really well, almost to the point that I almost dread seeing him sometimes in the hallway for fear of what I look like, you know, but uh, that's all right. There's always room for improvement, right? Um, but Of course, and we we do radio here. Of course, he does too, but uh, <laughs> we don't have to worry about it as much. No, there, there were good tips, and, and, and I think he did a good job of really juggling the past and the present. Absolutely, and I loved you talking with Steve Rabel, you know, uh, growing up here in this area, watching him play football first and foremost, and then as he got into his media career, it was interesting to just watch his growth personally, professionally, and he just seems like a genuinely nice person. Did you kind of get that feeling? Absolutely. I have known, well, I'm not saying I'm good buddies with him, but he did some things uh, with us. He, as I mentioned in the interview, hosted an MC at an event that I had, and he was incredible. Yes, you are correct. Steve Rabel is one of the nicest, finest, classiest guys I've ever had the pleasure to meet. So, And uh, I really liked the way he was so candid with the interview and, and uh, glad to have him on the show. That's all I can say. And yeah. then again, thanks to Stu Elway. Uh, he's always you know, he's been doing what he's been doing for 30 plus years. And he really nails a lot of what's going on in this state. He's a, just a fountain of information. I always enjoy talking to him. Well, and what a timely interview, you know, as we head to the midterms, I think a lot of people are both anxious and excited and just thinking it through and and there's some trepidation and, and all of it as we head to that sort of uncertain time. So it's it's a very apropos that you had that interview now as we look toward it, regardless, everybody should get out there and vote. Of course, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, next week, moving on to another subject here, Michelle Simon. She's the president and CEO of the Institute for Natural Medicine, Holistic Medicine. And there's a big movement going on, and it's led by this state in Oregon about the big drive to holistic medicine. It's been going on for a long time. I'm doing this by memory, but I believe that we have like half of the holistic practitioners in this state in Oregon in the entire United States. So that shows how important that is here. Uh, just want to let you know that um, my name again is Paul Casey, and uh, I, Eric, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, host of Spotlight on Success, and of course, executive producers, Steve Mills and Benny Mathers for doing such a great job. I'm not going to really have a regular quote today, but a couple of little humorous quotes. Here is one. I bought a little bag of air today. The company that made it was kind enough to put some potato chips in as well. <laughs> and one other one would be, I thought it was my dryer that was making my clothes shrink. Turns out, was my refrigerator. <laughs> this is courtesy of Turian Jackson of Sherman Oaks, California. You've been listening to the Voices of Experience Radio Network. No promotional fees have been paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166 that's 425-653-1166. And finally, experience is our best teacher.